The following podcast may contain sensitive topics like depression, suicide, sexual assault, and violence. Please make sure to listen with discretion, and if you or anyone you know is experiencing these things, please contact a professional. Links will be given in the podcast description. Don't worry, I am border fine. Border fine. If you are returning, I welcome you back, you gluttons for punishment. And if you are new, what are you doing? Please start with the first episode, not the second. I won't know if this is the order in which you are watching them, but my OCD knows. So watch them in order. <laughs> but um, I just want to say thank you to the feedback to friends who listened to um, the first episode. I did include a disclaimer, I did take some feedback back feedback back. Good job. Uh, words. And I made sure to include that as there are sensitive topics that are discussed. But let me tell you today, I'm fine. I am doing better uh, in my COVID healing journey. My cough has subsided, which is, thank God, honestly, it was pretty exhausting. And I'm feeling much better, still working from home to reduce the spread of the contagion and just overall feeling a bit better, but also feeling very isolated right now. So hopefully talking through some of this stuff will help perk up my mood. So we discussed last time kind of understanding my initial history with therapy, my introduction into mental health, understanding some of the early signs um, of my anger as being a prediction for some harder mental health issues to come. And we kind of left it off where I had been in my teen life. And this is a great jumping off point because some of the other symptoms I started experiencing were depression and anxiety. And a lot of that came from a place in my teen years because of circumstances and things that happened to me. So I can't say that I wasn't depressed as a child. I just don't remember that being an overarching emotion. I remember being sad because of my father's inability to show up to honestly anything of importance to me, uh, missing birthdays and Christmases and just, you know, overall just being a stand-up father figure, I guess. But for me, I I don't really associate depression in my early life. I do feel like I grappled with that mostly in my teenage and now adult years. So some of the things that were triggers for me, obviously, you're predisposed to have traumas, right? The anger that I was experiencing, the abandonment, the PTSD, it all kind of gets bundled together and creates even, even larger psychosis from those types of symptoms. And they come out for people in different ways. And for me, depression was something that hit me pretty hard. I want to say in the 14, 14 to 18 year range. And those warning signs and those symptoms, I was very cognizant of, but I absolutely repressed them and did not want to burden anyone with those, which is something that I have learned has been a catalyst in um, a lot of the decisions that I made. So what did sadness look like for me? Sadness was kind of 
hard for me to express because vulnerability was a sign of weakness, especially in the household that I grew up when grew up in. It was predominantly matriarchal because a lot of the men in our lives, the fathers uh, left or had passed away. So there was definitely an overcompensating factor that led to the very, I want to say, dominant female characteristics. And there was such a large drive to appear independent and confident. And that was definitely something that I had observed and adopted myself as a way to cope. So when I was feeling sad, it usually usually was expressed as anger. And um, when I got too sad to be able to express how I felt, I became manic and I would dive into my schoolwork or my friendships, other relationships headfirst, just trying to find any other emotion to feel, find things to keep me busy. So I would stay outside of my head because at night it was a dark, dark place. I remember I had a huge insomnia issue in high school and I was just on websites or on AIM chats or MSN messenger chats, just trying to have human connections to keep me grounded. I think that's truly what my brain was attempting to do was find anything that I could latch onto that felt real, that felt like I was connected to someone. And I didn't feel like I was floating in this abyss, which is how I would describe my sadness. It's not the same for everyone. And low, really, really low points can manifest in different ways. But for me, it just turned into this, I need to f- know where my boyfriend is or what are my friends doing? I have to be a part of it. And it was more extreme than FOMO, the hip kids call fear of missing out. It was just a need to feel like I am not going to be alone. My, my friends and my family are still there and I'm not going to be abandoned. So at this point, I'm creating these extreme attachment styles. And what's so funny is that initially, and for the most part throughout my life, I have always been really good at starting friendships. I'm really good at that first piece. I come off extremely confident, extroverted, talkative, and that made it easy to get people to open up and to create an immediate instant connection, which is what did I what I needed to feed that feeling, that satisfaction. But I learned that in order to have true connections, you have to be able to open up. And thus begins my still very current issue of oversharing. I have a hard time of knowing appropriate scenarios when to discuss things and This was kind of as a result of me trying to make friendships really, really quick. And I learned that I had no problem making the friendships, but it was making them last. And I'm not going to fault every person. I do take the blame in either pushing people away or just becoming so guarded after I get hurt that I push people out of my life. But... Teenage years are really hard and to have those relationships last when you are going through undiagnosed mental health issues and other people are as well. I was not alone in this regard, but 
you have a hard time of communicating and expressing how you feel, and you're very self-centered at this point. You're doing everything you can to feed your desires, your urges, your it's it's a, a survival instinct in this point in our lives where we're just trying to make sure that me, myself, and I is taken care of. Now I have all of these emotions that are becoming more apparent to me. They're rising at the surface. I can't keep them suppressed anymore. I took this opportunity to kind of reach out to my mom, let her know how I was feeling. And it resulted in an argument because our views just didn't align at that time. My poor mother didn't know how to receive information about feeling sad. Um, so sad enough to the point where you don't feel good. You don't want to do anything. I was calling off school all the time. I actually think I won a superlative senior year for um, most missed days. (laughs) And yet I still thrived in school, um, (laughs) at least academically. And I see now that it was just avoidance. So I went from this extreme attachment issue and then I just was avoiding. I was avoiding questions about my life. I was avoiding friends. It just, it kind of tumbled and then just got out of control. And I was just too overwhelmed, too much sensory stimulation, too many people asking what's wrong. And let me tell you, I am the type of person that if I tell you I'm okay and I don't want to talk, I really don't want to talk because when people approach me knowing I'm not doing okay and they ask me and they do that like pity face, they put a hand on your shoulder, they ask you how you're doing, for some reason that human connection just rises and like churns and just completely overwhelms me to the point that I start crying. And I do not want to cry in front of people. That's a huge no-no for me. So I was very much bratty and had an attitude and I was like, I'm fine. I don't want to talk about it. And I didn't. I wasn't trying to get anyone to goad or bait me. And so how I think a lot of this turned dark for me is at a point my sophomore year, um, I was at a party. And at that party, I was very much a a goody two-shoes, at least when it came to teenage rebellion and extracurriculars. I did not drink. I didn't think I had my first sip of alcohol until my junior year at my friend's house, but I didn't actually ever get drunk at all while in high school. Um, No, that's a lie. End of senior year, I did. Sorry, I retract that. But for the most part, I didn't. And (laughs) I, I knew that my mom... If I were to get in trouble, she knows all the tips and tricks. So I wouldn't even try to drink. I know she would try to check my breath. I didn't try to smoke because I knew she would smell my fingers. And so I brought water to a party. I drove my friends and my water was spilled by a guy who replaced it. I was drugged and I was raped. And the preceding days, weeks, and months after, I have completely blacked out. I don't remember how I got home. And I remember, uh, literally, I remember that party and what happened. And then two months ahead of me being ungrounded and being able to see my boyfriend. I don't remember my grounding. I know I was probably grounded because she thought I was out all night doing debauchery and God knows what. And I came home and I was probably in trouble. I don't remember any of it. And I did tell my friend and my friend didn't know what to do or how to help me. And I eventually did tell my mom. And that resulted in my second bout of therapy, which 
honestly, that counselor had no idea what she was doing. And it really turned me off to the idea. So I went for a few months. My mom said that the counselor to, uh, she needs to try and fix me. (laughs) And it was, I was just kind of numb. And at that point, my depression really just spiraled. And I often remember feeling an out-of-body experience. I remember going to school I remember having conversations and talking to people, but I was so checked out. I was just um, kind of like just floating in a sensory deprivation tank of my mind and just kind of being there and not really doing anything or feeling anything. Um, Yeah, that year is just kind of a blur. I remember bits and pieces. And at one point, I decided that I was going to kill myself and I didn't want to do a gun because I didn't think I could pull the trigger, which is honestly um, so sad <laughs> that you're already trying to find ways to work around your your very instinctual need to survive. So you try to find methods that you can kind of uh, delay that need, that instinct. Um, so I chose pills. And I said nothing to no one. And I think that's a very dangerous part of the disease is when you're truly struggling and you have those ideations, you want to hide that from people because you're afraid they're going to stop you. And that's, that's God, that's so scary because I've had people in my life who have had suicide ideations um, or have attempted. And I thankfully have been an outlet for those people and they've reached out to me or stated something. Um, And those people are alive today. And there are some people who aren't, who didn't reach out. And to think that I could have been a person because I was not willing to look weak to other people, it it makes me sad that I felt that way. And I'm thankful that I don't know fucking anything about pills. And I took like, I mean, it still can be toxic, but I took a bunch of, um, it was either ibuprofen or maybe it was Tylenol, acetaminophen. Um, and then my mom had like, from a knee injury, like, and like two Vicodin or something. That's all I could find. My mom is very into homeopathics. Thank God, because there wasn't that much when it came to prescriptions. So um, that didn't work. And I just got really, really sick. I vomited a lot. Um, and I was alive. And I was super bummed. But I also, let me tell you, the idea of trying to kill yourself or attempting to do that is very exhausting when you survive it. Because um, now at this point, it's a lot of effort to try again and to think of other ways to do this. And now you're also thinking you're a failure, at failing. So I decided to just figure other figure out other ways to make myself feel better. And that came through um, sexual promiscuity. And it was a way for me to feel in control and alive. And no one is going to tell me what to do with my body. Um, and it, it was more so at the time when there's now we have cameras on our flip phones. I sent a lot of pictures. I didn't really act physically because I was still extremely scarred from the experience. But I was, I talked to a lot of probably 70 year old dudes 
anywhere from 30 to 70 year old dudes on just different chat forums. Um, and I think I knew that, but I didn't care. I liked the positive um, reinforcement of being told that I was attractive and I didn't have a lot of uh, attention in high school. I was a very tall girl and I was, <laughs> my style choice, unfortunate for me was emo. So <laughs> I wasn't my, let me just say my milkshakes weren't bringing the boys to the yard. They were all over the internet and in people's phones, but they were not bringing the boys to the yard. So that's, how my depression kind of consumed me. And I'm thankful that I came out on, on the other side, but it wasn't by intervention of professional help or um, I didn't even discuss it with my mom. I just kind of swept it under the blanket. And my alternative was to continue cutting. That's what I did. I know I brought that up in the previous episode. That was a go-to for me. And I didn't really do drugs yet. Again, I wasn't drinking. So my addiction was pain. And it very much was a release and both a crutch. And I started using it for any type of emotion that I started to feel. If I was extremely sad, I would cut. If I got angry or got in a bad fight with my mom, I would cut. If I was broken up with, I would cut. If I was my friends and I weren't hanging out and I was upset about it, I would cut. I mean, it was just this vicious, vicious cycle. And it got to the point where I just said, I'm going to go back to therapy and I am going to try and fix this broken part of me. Up until this point, I was only going to counselors, um, people who are uh, licensed counselors. I was not going to anyone who was a diagnostician, which would be your psychologist and psychiatrist, because it was not um, available on state healthcare. So I was not learning about what was causing these issues and these problems. It was more so just having an outlet to vent to. Um, and a lot of people joke about the counselor trope, which is when you ask a question, they just pose it back to you. And that was very much my experience with counselors up until this point. I would say something and they'd be like, well, why does that make you feel that way? I'm like, I just told you why it made me feel that way. Can we discuss like, is this a problem? Is there is there something I can do about it? It was not very solution oriented. It was just people who are paid to sit on a couch. And I just, I, I continued therapy for another year and I learned that my therapist was moving to Michigan. Again, abandonment issues. And instead of finding someone else, I just said, okay, guess I'm done with therapy. So let's get into some of these symptoms, how they manifested for me and what can be done proactively to prevent these things in yourself and those around you, in your children, in your family. Um, and the biggest one is understanding that this is not going to be an outline that will tell you for sure that someone is depressed and needs help. This is just going to make you aware to heighten your senses and just be observant and concerned. And for me, the biggest thing um, was the change in my behavior from the mania to the extreme lows. That would be um, kind of the 
if we were to generalize everything that was going on is I had a change in the relationships and the friends that I was talking to and seeking out. I went from extremely attached and just trying to be friends with people because I was afraid of loneliness to now moving on to being avoidant, staying at home, not wanting to go out. And these are extreme changes too. When we are hormonal in our in our prepubescent and pubescent um, stages of life, those hormones will cause behavioral changes. So it's not to say that every teen that gets sad when they're frustrated or angry when they're sad or decides that they don't like the friend that they're talking to. It's not stating that these things are going to be exact indications of depression, but it's noticing when you have a sequence of symptoms presented and you're noticing them in your friends or family um, or children, that this is when you need to start asking questions and just being more diligent and involved and understanding and having open communication. That's the biggest thing is making sure that you are discussing these feelings and never admonishing or punishing for feeling that way. You can still, I think in my personal opinion, I'm again, not a professional, but I think it's still okay to the the correct and discuss the bad behaviors that are a result of them. But I do not think that it's appropriate to get mad at people after expressing the root or the cause of those behaviors as something that they're struggling with and they're just trying to find the words or to cope with. I think that that should be encouraged and talked about before extreme measures of confrontation or punishment are taken. So that I think is helpful. And it's also educating yourselves. So making sure that you read journals, articles, there are free medical journals out there. Um, but every person should be educating themselves when they notice a particular symptom. You're not going to be able to diagnose yourself, but I think it's important to also understand the different aspects of mental health and how they are uh, reframed for the individual or that person. And it can be good to have that fact, those facts and knowledge because you're not going to be coming from a judgmental place. You will have a foundation to understand these things. And that is so important for yourself, not just being concerned about those around you, but just knowing what to look for in yourself because you are your biggest advocate. Of course, we want people to be able to notice the changes that we make in our own lives. But at the end of the day, the person that's going to help you the most is you. And I think that's also something that I'm learning and trying to take away as well that I think I expected <laughs> um, family and friends to be like, and I know I this might sound slightly contradictory to saying I didn't want people to ask me if I was fine. That came from a, a an, an idea that I didn't want to appear weak. However, I still felt and expected that people will notice the changes in me. And that's why I didn't say anything. And I think that's why I felt and I pushed even further away because I was like, these people don't care about me, do they? They don't know that I just tried to take my life last night. They don't know that I cut every day. And you do have to take some responsibility for that part because you aren't expressing it. And again, it really diminishes your capacity to be able to think sometimes and to make good decisions. So it's also something you cannot blame yourself for. But if you are constantly bringing awareness to how you are feeling, it makes it easier for you to have the strength to identify and to speak it. So that's kind of the episode wrap up for today. Um, just kind of discussing the depression aspect of my life and how I was feeling. And again, I hope you guys understand that these, this is anecdotal 
information. This is not me um, claiming to be a professional. And this is to bring awareness and to help people identify uh, certain things within their own life and to make better decisions uh, to improve themselves. So I appreciate, appreciate you guys giving a listen. I've got dry mouth so bad right now. Goodness. <laughs> An aspect that I did not think about. I will have a drink. I'll have a beverage with me next time. Um, but I appreciate you guys tuning in again um, and uh, hope to get more feedback and can't wait for the next episode. Bye, you guys. Bye.